0: You're listening to Worktape, episode seventy-eight.
1: Welcome to another edition of the Worktape podcast. It's your boy Money Mitchell. We got Isaac Grooven Grover, and uh, we started a bit of a conversation last episode in regards to posthumous releases. And then Isaac touched upon the point of a lot of record companies and whatnot deciding to repackage and re-release existing material and seeing basically just how many times they can continuously sell the same album or the same music. Some of the biggest culprits of that very practice are actually some of our favorite records. And I touched on my favorite record of all time, which is Marvin Gaye's What's Going On from 1971 and how it's been through a couple of re-releases now. Uh, Most recent in 2021, they did do a 50th anniversary edition for that album, which of course has the original, I think, seven, eight, nine tracks on it. And then basically what they did to kind of spice it up was They had essentially the same album. So you got the original tracks off of the original 71 release. Then you got the same tracks directly following said album, just with slightly different mixing on it. They put in parentheses, I think when you go on like streaming services and you can see it, they refer to the uh, different mixed versions as the Detroit mixes. As if the record was not mixed in Detroit (laughs) in the first place.
0: We need those Detroit preamps because they have all that color.
1: I, I guess so. But I mean, I've listened to some of the Detroit mixes as opposed to the original mixes. And there's really barely any difference between the two. In some cases, it's a little more stripped back. I think it does emphasize certain production elements maybe over other ones but to basically have the same album twice back to back on you know the release is just kind of odd to be really honest with you now to the credit of Motown and I guess Tomla Records because it was actually Tomla Records at that time but I guess to UMG Motown's credit They did include a bunch of music that was not originally on what's going on. And they did, in fact, incorporate a lot of early versions of tracks that would be on later Marvin records, such as I think they have a demo version of Distant Lover, which came off of Let's Get It On, which was the following record, which is actually really, really nice. I actually prefer the version that they... Included on the what's going on re-release over the one that's actually on Let's Get It On, which is kind of interesting because sometimes that does happen where you have kind of a demo version of something or, you know, an earlier version of something that's actually better than the, you know, original one, you know, I I guess.
0: That's different than when they both are virtually the same, song, like it's the same session. Yeah. Like, it's not a remaster, you know what I'm saying? It's not like they remastered it. It's not a remix in the sense that they changed the arrangement. The arrangement is the exact same. The tracking is the exact same.
1: Yeah, uh, with this particular one, it was similar. I mean, there was a lot of similar elements between this earlier version of Distant Lover, which it's not even called that on the What's Going On re-release. I think it's called, like, Head Track or something.
0: I was going to make fun if it was a different name. (laughs)
1: <laughs> and it was yeah it's yeah it's um i forgot exactly what it's called but there's a lot of similar production elements that you can hear kind of like the bones of the track mostly in terms of the bass and some of the melodies but there was a lot of differences in terms of like strings and different kinds of like vocal
0: so arrangement there are different instruments it was almost like a not a different composition but there are some compositional decisions that were different than another version.
1: Uh yes. Yes, yes, yes. Okay. So it wasn't like it was the same exact track just like a lower fidelity version. So that happens a lot though, where it's like Oh, yes.
0: And honestly, like stuff like that to me is clearly a cash grab. It's unnecessary and it's like never mind. You don't need 15 different versions of the same freaking album.
1: Yeah, you really don't. And I think it's just one of those things where it's kind of like if you were gaining tracks or if you were gaining, you know, some things that maybe got lost in the shuffle originally, then that would be really, really cool. But that's not what ends up happening a lot of times, especially not with what's going on in terms of pretty much they are just kind of repurposing a lot of the original stuff. And I guess in a way, it's kind of cool. For someone like myself, who is really curious as to hear like some of these early versions of these Marvin tracks, and um, in some cases, you're even able to like pull stems and more like individual layers from these tracks. I know that there's some Marvin albums where they actually just give you like the instrumental, which I think is actually really cool, because as someone who is a bit of an aficionado in regards to not only listening to music, but also, of course, producing it. I do like to hear the instrumentals or just the isolated vocals by themselves to see how it kind of all came together, what kind of techniques maybe were done in terms of mixing, especially since, you know, back in the day, they didn't have nearly the technology that they do now. So it's really interesting to see kind of how they got some of those effects that, Honestly, a lot of producers now are trying to replicate, which is pretty interesting.
0: Dude, I love the stems, man. The stems are my friend.
1: Yeah, I love the stems too. So I mean, if it was something like that, where you got, you know, a bunch of stems or instrumental tracks that you could remix or you could, you know, kind of pull apart, like that would be one thing.
0: So those MPCers could create their hip hop beats. (laughs) Sure.
1: Yeah, of course. But if it's something where it's literally just the same album but just like slightly different mixing or like slightly different stereo panning or whatever, that's when I kind of feel like, okay, there's a little bit of some laziness going on. And honestly, it's kind of a little sad because I feel like the gay estate is a little money hungry and is kind of really writing the coattails off of all the contributions that Marvin did. Just look at their blurred lines lawsuit. Oh yeah. You know, there was a huge payday over that.
0: How did you feel about that?
1: Um so of course I am one to say that intellectual property should be protected. I do think that there needs to be boundaries and parameters in regards to the difference between homage and theft. However, I felt like in the Blurred Lines situation, I don't think it was close enough to say that it was true theft. Because in my observations and actually in law, the only things that really hold up in a courtroom are really melody and lyric. And I feel like with the Blurred Lines one, They were mostly suing kind of over more of the drums and the production, which I feel like you can't really trademark. You can't trademark a drum pattern. You can't trademark, you know, a feel, so to speak. And if you put both the Marvin track, which was Gotta Give It Up and Blurred Lines, if you put the sheet music together, you can tell that while similar, there are some differences. And it wasn't like Vanilla Ice, who blatantly stole the baseline of "Under Pressure" to make "Ice Ice Baby."
0: Was it John Deacon?
1: Yeah, it wasn't like that. And there's a hilarious video of Vanilla Ice saying, "Oh, his is do 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 do, and mine is do 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 do." It's hilarious because it's like, man, you're freaking caught. You're caught. It's over. Just admit that you took the baseline. And you ran with it. You added some other production on it, which was cool, but you ran with it.
0: What's even worse is he clearly took it because there's a piano that's in it. Yeah. Cause that's in the original record, isn't it? don't don't That's in the original, right? Or am I wrong?
1: Yes. Yes, okay. it is. Yeah. Yes, it is. <laughs> and and you can hear it even on his track too. So it's you, right there. <laughs> yeah, so there's no doubt. It's not like him and his producers were no Jay Dilla, where you could, you know, pick out individual layers of, you know, an obscure track and make it sound like it didn't come from a sample. Like that was kind of the brilliance of Jay Dilla was just how surgical Dilla was in regards to um, sampling. He he sampled, I think he is probably the greatest user of the MPC and sampling, I think ever.
0: I love Dilla. I've been on a Dilla rabbit hole.
1: Well, and Dilla actually fits into our conversation, too, with posthumous releases, because he died pretty early on as well. He died from lupus, um, which was a blood disease. And uh, there was some music of his that has been released posthumously as well. His biggest album actually was released after he died, Donuts. But then you also have an album like uh, The Shining, too, which was... Uh, another example of an album that was released posthumously. Oh, and the Dilatronic also. So he's actually had a fair amount of music that's been released posthumously, but therein lies the difference between the ones that are done with care and the ones that are cash grabs. The Yancey Estate, because his name is James Yancey. So the Yancey Estate has had a really heavy involvement in the release of his music. And you can tell just because... It is new. It's not like he took existing tribe songs and re-released them that he worked on, or it's not like they re-released the work that he did with Common, like Water for Chocolate, and re-released it over and over again. Right. It wasn't like they took those Sulquarian records and just continued to re-release them. The release of Dilla's posthumous stuff was actually unheard beats just because he made so much music.
0: That's different, though, because, you know, there are plenty of artists who have passed away that they release tracks after, and that's fine because they are a separate entity from their other stuff. Even if, you know, sometimes there's a similarity, like you're talking about demos, like some of those instrumentals are precursors to or more direct precursors because technically everything's related Yeah, in the world of art, but that's a whole other topic. But yeah, some of these tracks, specifically instrumentals, are a precursor to an already released one anyway, but it sounds different enough where it's just a separate entity, you know?
1: Yeah, and that's kind of where I find myself with Dilla in regards to how his music was released. And that's why I feel like they handle his material well in that respect. And another artist where they've re-released some landmark albums, but have actually also done a fair amount of new stuff is Michael Jackson. You know, with it being 2022, Thriller, of course, got a 40-year commemorative release, although it had been re-released, I think, a couple of times previously for like 25th anniversary. And I think they did that actually not too long, either before or after he died, because that was like in the mid-2000s. Right. And they had modern artists jump on the original tracks. They had like Akon and Michael Jackson track together. So that was you know, of the era, right, in the sense of the 2000s. But even the posthumous albums that MJ's estate has put out, most notably Escape, was actually pretty good because it was a lot of stuff that up until that point had been unreleased, that had been mixed, or that all the masters were kept intact, but they, you know, just brought it together and finally released it. And the big kind of song off of that record was the collab with Justin Timberlake, which was Love Never Felt So Good, which I have no idea why that wasn't released because that would have been a hit for MJ as well. My viewpoint is that probably is just Thriller was waste stacked and they just didn't have any room for it. But in Thriller, it is also kind of like, how many times are you going to re-release Thriller? I mean, as if the original sales on Thriller were not enough to... <laughs> Uh, to you know, be satisfied with. Maybe they're going to continue to re-release it so they can get the crown of having the highest-selling album back because the Eagles took it from them. Yes, they did. With the Greatest Hits release. Tying it back to what you said about Greatest Hits albums earlier. My dad bought that
0: one. The Eagles' Greatest Hits is probably one of the most impactful Greatest Hits records in my life, you know?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's a good compilation of songs. I mean... The Eagles in their prime were one of the best bands of the 70s. Although with the kind of exception of like Hotel California and maybe Desperado or like one of these nights, they weren't really like an album band to me, with the exception of like Hotel California. They were more like a singles band where I think with Hotel California, I really, well, Hotel California definitely was like super cohesive album, of course.
0: Yes, yes, it was. 75?
1: Yeah, mid-70s. Yes. Which also is another album that they continuously milk. They even are doing a tour for Hotel California all these years later. So that is without a doubt going to sell out.
0: It should be the abandoned Hotel California tour. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, 76. Dang it. Well, it was actually released in 77, so I was off.
1: Yeah, but I mean... You were close enough, man.
0: Yeah. Um,
1: but I mean, the Eagles were kind of one of those groups that always, like I said, it was a singles band to me. It was almost kind of like Queen and like the respect that they're a great band. But I don't think there's, well, actually, I mean, the Eagles do have the definitive album, which is Hotel California. But Queen, Queen, I felt like their stuff was kind of scattered throughout their albums. Oh, totally scattered. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like they ever had like a thriller or a no. Hotel California or like a what's going on where it's like this is the definitive queen album to listen to. And and the way I think that's kind of what made them really cool because each album was like really different. I mean like sheer heart attack their early album was way different than like a night at the opera, you know.
0: That one's really good. I like their first one and Jazz is pretty good.
1: Jazz is really good. Jazz is kind of an underrated Queen record, I think, actually, because everybody always talks about A Night at the Opera since it has Bohemian Rhapsody on it, and people also talk about A Day at the Races, which is like kind of a follow-up record to that one. But actually, Sheer Heart Attack is really good, too. It's very different. It's not like the super polished Queen sound No, that they kind of got later known for, especially with Freddie being like as big of a perfectionist in the studio as he was. But I think that's kind of what makes it cool is that actually, I feel like Sheer Heart Attack is almost like Queen doing punk music in a way.
0: I have a few notes on that, seriously. So I wanted to go back to something we're talking about regarding, well, first off, I'm just going to say this. So the Eagles' Greatest Hits, I'm pretty positive that's my favorite Greatest Hits record because I typically don't like them, but that one's pretty good. That's a good one, yeah. But you also made a good point, though. You said that they are are very singlesy band, right? You know they're not really the most recordy band. And actually, a lot of the artists that I tell you I don't like their greatest hits. I think they're really good at albums. So you got Coldplay, Foo Fighters, Bob Marley. Yeah, they actually make really good records. Now now is a different story. But Coldplay put out at least three or four solid, like amazing records, right? Yeah. And then um the Whalers, I think were consistent, right? Yeah. I think Confrontation didn't really count because that was released after he died and I'm not sure if he wanted to release it like that. I feel like that was decided after he died, but that's just my opinion. I don't really know. Mm-hmm. Nirvana had such a short career, but I would say Bleach is decently good enough to hang around with In Utero and Nevermind. So, I guess there was a sort of a consistency with Nirvana, but with the Eagles, I agree, you know, their albums are okay, like I'll try listening with the exception, which is just an exception of Hotel California, you know, it's okay. But when you get, um, oh, Eagle's greatest hits, I mean, that's a good hits record. And so that's that. But here's the other thing, and, and you bring up a really good point, a lot, and I hated on a lot of 80s music for a long time. Now, a lot of the 80s music that I started getting into that made me love the 80s, was like orchestral maneuvers in the dark it was your post-punk new wave sound yeah and so i got into kino which no one knows about their russian post-punk band soviet post-punk band and you get into joy division you get into u2 mm. you get into a lot of punk outfits of the 80s or punk driven outfits of the 80s i'm like all there man i think it's some of the greatest stuff or the police which is one of the greatest bands of all time but they're alternative yeah you know, it's punk and it's new wave and it's just like, I love the police, but we'll get into that another time. We might have to get Jason on here.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, because, yeah, Jason is the guy for the police going on tour with them and all that. He's basically Sting. <laughs> but... Yeah. And, and well, and I feel like with the police, I mean, they were kind of an album band, actually, because. Yes, they were. They were. Yeah. Like Regatta the Blanc. Oh, it's so good synchronicity actually is really good too that is a really solid album so i feel like they were a little different but someone or an artist that or band rather that actually probably benefited maybe from a greatest hits in a way maybe not depending on who you ask i guess might be like the smiths too i feel like the smiths may have been somebody or band rather who got a lot of their notoriety off of the greatest hits being able to take kind of the individual things, although they had some great stuff too. The Queen is Dead, for example, of the Smiths is kind of like...
0: The Smiths are properly, which is a very British way of putting it, they're very properly consistent. Yeah. I kind of used to dislike a lot of their pocket tracks. Actually, I used to think that, um, not Barbarism, I love that one, but I used to be bothered by Big Mouth. I thought that was kind of like lame. I'm going to get hated on here, but I don't care. I used to think Heaven Knows is lame. Hmm and also uh, Charming Man. I used to find those songs a bit too like poppy for my taste and kind of like, okay, these are easy ones. They're kind of lame, but you know, they grew on me. I think one of the ones that really grew, like I realized how much I loved them was There Is a Light That Never Goes Out. Yeah. And I started to appreciate everything else about the band and then Big Mouth became one of my favorites. Big Mouth is one of my favorites. Lyrically, it's one of the coolest songs I've ever heard in my life. Oh, yeah. And I started to understand Morrissey's genius, you know. Now, I still don't. What's the one that goes? What's that one? It's that big oh, um, one.
1: Um, Is it uh, I forgot How the name. Soon Is Now?
0: Yes. Yeah. Just like everybody else, I am human. Yeah, just like yeah. Uh, Jeff and I always trash on that song because we we're like, okay, we get it, we get it. But it's a cool song. I'm not hating on them. No, the Smiths are one of the coolest bands of all time. I, I got into the Smiths hype train and I just realized like, wow, this band blew my mind. And, um, I love that band now with the exception, I feel like their drummer's a bit useless, but that's just my opinion. I don't want to be a jerk. <laughs> no, see, it, it's, it's funny because he's just a metronome, you know, he doesn't do anything super crazy. And I look, that was absolutely rude. I'm not saying he was, I he was useless as far as like what other people would see him that way. You get what I'm saying? Like, yeah, most people would listen to that band and think like they would not know who the drummer is. I like to listen to those guys. So I kind of pay attention, but no one's going to know who he is. And it's funny because it's always about Johnny and Morrissey. But the thing is, I mean, Andy Rourke, again, we can get super into his grooves. Oh my goodness. I am obsessed with Andy Rourke. I love him. So there's that. But I want to get into the Smiths another time because I could talk about them forever and I think we should do that.
1: Yeah, that's got to be like a whole another episode.
0: But now going away from the alternative acts, a lot of 80s mainstream rock acts like Kiss, uh, not Pantera. I don't know why I thought of Pantera. So Kiss is one of them. Yeah. Who else? Uh, Led Zeppelin. <laughs> Led Zeppelin. Why did I do that? So Def Leppard's one of them and also...
1: Def Leppard, yeah.
0: Van Halen that's I always said Van Halen and Led Zeppelin for some reason that makes no sense but whatever (laughs) Queen was one of them and then oh Ario Speedwagon yeah so there's some heavy hitters of the 80s sound in fact Chicago was one of those that I hated in the 80s for obvious reason I told you about that but actually here's the thing a lot of those artists that got their leg in the 70s but started to kind of be like an 80s act like Journey yeah they lose me. And that's just a personal preference. But that's why I hate a lot of, or I traditionally have hated a lot of hair metal. Hair metal and I have gotten a rocky start, man. And so I had to kind of get into that and appreciate the genre or glam rock. I used to kind of really hate hair metal and glam rock. But here's the thing. First off, I had to listen to the 80s underground to really appreciate 80s production. I did. You know, Simple Minds and Joy Division. I mean, I had to get used to that. And then Talking Heads, even though they, I still prefer their 70s stuff was still a bit of a primer because it's late 70s, right? Yeah. And then uh, Gang of Four. Yeah. But then as much as I hated hair metal, I started to get more into them when I started listening to Van Halen's and Kiss's 70s acts, you know, the 70s work. Thin Lizzy is another great example of that um, shuffle rock from the 70s. It's beautiful, right? Yeah. And so I also tried a little bit of Queen in the 70s. And a lot of these bands I didn't like in the 80s, I really started to realize, wow, they sound really good in the early, early, mid, late 70s, whatever, whichever 70s. And so I started to realize like, oh, these bands, they're not just like this band that puts on a bunch of processing because of course the engineers do that. So I can't blame the band for the processing all the time. Yeah. But it lost me. It almost felt like those power ballads, like I almost felt like it ruined a production, but that's just a production preference of mine,
1: right? Yeah.
0: But um no, I really fell in love with a lot of those bands I disliked in the 80s, but I listened to their 70s work and I was blown away. Kiss is one of those bands because I think they debuted in 74. Yeah. I love that stuff, man. Even uh, Judas Priest, which is technically more in a metal genre. Yeah. That doesn't count. I don't mind metal in either, by the way. I don't mind metal, the proto metal of the 60s and 70s. And then when metal was really at its heyday in the 80s, I mean, that's its peak. Yeah. I'm kind of cool with metal from any era personally. Yeah. And I know it's mouthful.
1: <laughs> no, that's definitely no no, that's definitely really good points and I guess tying back like Queen is actually an example too of stuff that's also been re-released to death. Oh, totally. I mean Bohemian Rhapsody has been re-released I think two or three times. It's gone like number 1 every time it's been re-released. Yes. Because it is a great song, and it's a classic in its own right, but it is kind of like, man, how many times are you going to go ahead and just re-release Bohemian Rhapsody for an easy number one to a certain extent? I'm kind of like, okay. And then there was some unreleased stuff of Queen that was actually pretty good too, including, I want to say, there was actually some unreleased stuff that MJ and Freddie were working on, which was really, really interesting. There's more to life than this, I think. Okay. But you get a lot of re-release stuff with Queen as well. And I kind of do feel like that is kind of the surviving members, Roger and Brian, getting easy money to a certain extent. Yep. It really does feel like that. It does kind of really feel like, you know, just them getting another quick buck, especially since they are continuing the tour with like Adam Lambert now too. I feel like that's kind of the thing, like, They're touring with Adam Lambert, but they didn't make any original music with Adam Lambert as the singer. I feel like if they actually tried to maybe do something like original with Adam at the helm, that might have been kind of interesting. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But for them basically to kind of go on a bit of a nostalgia act basis, this kind of just, eh. And then actually, uh, you talk about also 80s kind of new wave you know, post-punk, um, U2 falls in that category as well of um, some re-releases, greatest hits.
0: Their first few re- the 80s U2 is, I get it. Octung is pretty, okay, that's a good album, but I'm still an 80s u 2 Oh, yeah. Specifically early, Joshua Tree really is the last U2 album I care about. That's just my opinion, man. I'm sorry.
1: That's the one I was going to say is the one that continues to be re-released. and (laughs) Yes, it does. (laughs) They did a whole tour just with the Joshua Tree as the backdrop, which actually I think is really cool because they did play the entire album in the tour. It wasn't just, you know, streets, still haven't found, I'm looking for it. They didn't play just the hits off of Joshua Tree. They played the entire album front to back. Okay. Which actually I think that's really cool when live bands decide to take kind of a definitive album in their discography that maybe they haven't played in its entirety live and they decide to do it.
0: So, yes, I love With or Without You, okay? I love that track. I love it. I love it. I love it. But can you take a guess at which one is my favorite on that record? And I'm not going to lie. There are two that come to mind. I mean, With or Without You is probably one of those three, but without With or Without You, think of the other two tracks that I love.
1: Oh, man. That's just take a guess. Tough. Take a guess. That's going to be tough, man. Um, Try me. Uh, I actually have to look at the track listing. Ah. Because I have to see. Because based off of what you've said in regards to liking more like in-pocket type stuff, Um, is one of them still haven't found? Do you like that track?
0: You know, honestly, not really. No. No? It's okay. No, okay. it's not really that one. I'll, I'll just give it to you. Um, What are the two? The other two tracks that I love, Bullet and Exit. Because mm. I love Bullet the Blue Sky is one of the coolest intros. To me, that's is it's like Dave Grohl style drumming. You know what I mean? Like you sure. hear it or it reminds me of John Bonham. Like that to me is one of the most iconic intros to a song. And that's just for me personally. To me, that's up there with the greatest drum riffs.
1: Yeah. Oh, and then Exit. Yeah, that makes sense
0: honestly it's pretty characteristic of him because of sunday bloody sunday yes from uh, war yeah he has a history of hooky drum riffs right Mm. so i would give that to him and exit is just a really cool builder it's really quiet but i like how it starts really quiet and then like it gets louder and louder and it's just classic u2 right
1: yeah so basically kind of what you're getting at is even on the quote-unquote commercial U2 albums, the songs that you still gravitate towards are the ones that are very reminiscent of the early sound, basically, is what you're getting at. Oh, totally. So, basically, the war era U2, that's like the unforgettable fire era U2. Mm -hmm. Yep. Where it was more kind of just, I don't know, post-punk and I don't know, Irish angst, I guess, is the way... Yeah, I mean that is basically what you two did for the first couple of albums was Irish angst, essentially. Oh,
0: so good, and there is that punk energy. That's why post-punk is so cool. Is that you know, Susie and the Banshees? I mean, you, you got all this this groovy. It's it's danceable and it's groovy. Yeah, but it's punk driven, and that's why I'm telling you, the Chameleons is one of the coolest bands I've ever heard in my entire life. Script of the Bridge. Oh, Script of the Bridge is a 40-year-old album now. 1983.
1: Wow. Well, uh, yeah, we couldn't quite get there since we're in 22. but We'll talk about it another time. We'll definitely have to make note of it. But yeah, no, I think kind of just to wrap up where we started, um, I think that's kind of just the real distinguishing factor of kind of re-releases is if you're actually bringing something new to the table in regards to new unreleased material, Or maybe a radically different mix of a familiar favorite, like that's one thing. But a lot of times, especially with remasters or re-releases, which remasters I can get behind because you're not even really touching the original; you're just kind of bringing it up to kind of what our recording standards are now and making it more in line with you know listening and whatnot. And in some cases, actually, a remaster very much benefits a track. Because sometimes there was some limitations, depending on the album, of course, there was some limitations in regards to the first pass of mastering. And generally, I find that '80s music remastered actually sounds really good, and is definitely on par, especially with a lot of what's coming out now. But basically, just to kind of bookend this whole posthumous slash re-release topic, um, I think it really just depends on kind of the estate's involvement in terms of how involved they are in regards to the release of the music but then also i think it's just a complete case-by-case thing in regards to whether or not you're getting any new material and i think the ones where you get the new material are the ones that generally go over really well and they're held in pretty high regard so once again, that concludes this edition of the WorkTape podcast and our overall discussion on posthumous releases. However, there is one thing that we could potentially segue into uh, for the next episode, which is the prevalence of artificial intelligence and specifically Chat GBT, as well as the many different creations that have been emerging on platforms such as TikTok and YouTube. Of AI generated tracks from dead artists. So it's an interesting segue into the whole idea of AI's influence into music and specifically tampering with dead artists and music. And we'll discuss, of course, the actual results of uh, these AI generated expressions, but also we'll talk about whether or not it's maybe even like ethically correct to really try to do on this AI, you know, generated music, it's basically kind of the music equivalent of a deep fake. Yep. And we'll talk about that in uh, greater detail. Of course, there was also the AI rapper, who quickly got dropped from Capitol Records as well. And we'll talk about that controversy. So actually, that's... And will
0: we be replaced?
1: Yes. And of course, we'll talk about that. And I guess in a greater conversation too, in terms of technology's influence of music and or how music influences technology and kind of just that uh, dichotomy so stay tuned for that episode because that one is going to be a trip once again it is your boy money mitchell isaac rubin grover stay tuned
0: don't be replaced by a robot later okay